In our conversation with Patricia, an Irish woman living in Serbia, Zoya and I explore the concept of what it means to be curious, what it means to stand your ground, and what it means to collaborate, and how all of this has enabled Patricia to navigate through her life with courage as at times she finds herself having to make monumental decisions. We hope you enjoy this conversation and keep rocking. Welcome to another episode of She Rocks Global, recorded in virtual reality because we are still living through a pandemic. And I'm really, really pleased to be sitting in a conversation with Zoya, who's sitting in Belgrade, and with Patricia. Hello, Patricia, and welcome to She Rocks Global. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's so wonderful. I've heard so many wonderful things about you. I've read a little bit about you. But I think the best way to get you to you know, introduce yourself to our audience is for you to tell us what you think we need to know about you. Right. Well, um, I, I guess to start with, I'm Irish. Uh, you'll figure that out from my accent. Um, I'm Irish and I'm a lawyer, um, but don't be afraid about that uh, because I'm a bit of an unusual lawyer. Um, I, I, I've just spent the last almost 25 years in the Balkans. So I, I came here in the worst possible time, under Milosevic, during war, bombing and sanctions. And I, because I accidentally married a Serb, to be honest, there's, there's always, um, there's always a, a strange reason behind these moves in our lives. And, and I, at the age of 25, uh, came to this region knowing very little about it, I have to say, probably at the worst time in its history, because, you know, it was, it was Yugoslavia crumbling and falling apart. So, um, I probably wasn't seeing it at its best, but obviously I was young and in love, so I didn't notice a lot of it. And uh, so, yeah, and then I, I thought I was staying here for a couple of years. And, and like over 20 years later, I'm still here, having built the biggest um, full service law firm in former Yugoslavia, um, serving foreign clients coming in and into the region. Right. So for the sake of our global audiences, I'm just going to come back a little bit in terms of from the eyes or through the eyes of young 25-year-old in love Patricia, who lands herself in Yugoslavia under Milosevic, what was happening in that area and what did we what were you seeing? And of course, I understand that it's I'm not looking for the authoritative history no. of Balkans, but this is through the eyes of in love 25-year-old Patricia. Well, firstly, um, I was an explorer. So I came to this uh, this country out of curiosity. Um, I, you know, I had never been before. Um, I, you know, it was described as a very utopic environment where, you know, they had this wonderful mix of East and West. They had a lifestyle that we in, in poor Ireland at the time uh, couldn't imagine. They had infrastructure. They, you know, it was a really advanced place. And uh, and I remember coming in, I came in the first time by, by bus because I could take the train to Budapest because we had sanctions. So I crawled on a little minivan and I remember coming through the border and the fear, you know, would I be able to get in? Um, and then coming through the dark, 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 uh, I mean, physically dark because there was, there was no lights, the sanctions, there was very little power. And crossing the bridge, Franco Bridge, the first time, in the dark with no traffic because there was there was almost no petrol. So people were, were buying their petrol out of little, you know, cans at, at the side of the road. So it was all smuggled. There was this, you know, really edgy, you know, uh, East Berlin in a way kind of feel to it. Um, 
But then, you know, there was real poverty. It was poverty. It was cold. It was miserable. There was people squashing on buses and nobody paying for tickets, uh, you know. But there was an undercurrent of young people who had nothing to do with this man, Milosevic, and who fundamentally believed he didn't represent them. And obviously, these are the people we hung out with. Uh, I was part of the European Law Students Association, and we had connections with young lawyers here as well. So it was really part of, you know, showing them that they're not on their own, that their views are are not unique, that there are people around the world who think the way they do. But I and I liked, I guess, being Irish, I kind of liked that that undercurrent, that element of, you know, people had such bad expectations of this country at that time. Serbia, in particular, was very, very badly portrayed internationally, and I felt it didn't entirely represent the people. So that was my curiosity. And there were pra- there were practical challenges, I have to say. You know, the electricity ran out, and you know, you couldn't get anything, and there was a black market, and you know, all of that stuff, and 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 you know, currency you know, hyperinflation and, you know, all of that stuff that, you know, I think is a reason why the Serbs are so resilient today because they've been through a lot of stuff before. That's really interesting for me. I think um, I've, when I spent some time with Zoya in Belgrade, I must have shared a little bit around um, what I thought were the similarities between Serbia and South Africa, um, particularly now in history. Um, and so it's just interesting to get that take from, you know, a young Patricia who was curious and at the same time a massive explorer. So then we fast forward because now Patricia's running, you know, the largest full services law firm in the region. How did that happen? What was that journey? Right. Well, I've just left it, um, having done it for 25 years. But I um, the journey was like... Um, opportunistic, I would say, uh, because the entire country uh, was underrepresented. Uh, once Milosevic was ousted out of power and a new Jinjic government came into effect, um, ev- there were opportunities everywhere because there was privatization of state-owned entities. Uh, we did a lot of work for the World Bank and the likes, uh, looking at valuing businesses and selling them to private sectors. So a lot of new money was coming in, a lot of global players were coming in. So we grew our business representing international investors buying those companies. Um, and then when they bought them, uh, they found all the mess that was on the inside. So then we had to clean that up. So that was an interesting process and it allowed us to then develop specialized areas of law and that allowed us to grow. So from day one, our strategy um, uh, was essentially to represent foreign investors coming in and become a Western-style law firm because it didn't exist at all in the market at the time. So for me, what it sounds like is that you spent then a lot of time in a lot of big rooms with big tables. Now, (laughs) (laughs) in those rooms with the big tables, were there people who looked like you? Well, nobody looks like me. (laughs) Nobody looks looks like me for two reasons. Uh, Well, one, obviously, there was like 20 Irish people living in Serbia at the time. Um, Nobody had the experience I had because they had never worked at at, at, at a foreign law firm. So I had trained at a big Irish law firm. So I knew how things uh, could and should look. Um, So... And even to this day, I, I'm st- I was still the only senior partner in my firm when I left it, who was a woman. Um, it's very much a male-dominated world. Um, and even here in the Balkans, where there are some fantastic women lawyers, there's very, very few of them at the top of their firms. So I was different because I was a foreigner. I was different because I was a woman. And I was ultimately, I think I was different because none of that kind of bothered me. Um, it was, I had no complexes whatsoever about who or what I was because... 
I was the exotic one. I'm being frank. I mean, it wasn't not necessarily just about me, me, but it was just the fact, the concept that I was ahead of the market and I had knowledge and experience that nobody here had put me in a very unique position. But then what was also unique about me is once I had the position, I utilized every bit of it. So when you have a position, it's about understanding what your competitive advantage is and squeezing every single thing you can out of it. Well, so if someone's listening and they're thinking, well, I am an exotic bird in a room for whatever reason, and I have this competitive advantage through my exotic nature, um, how did you dial into understanding how to use your competitive advantage? And what did that look like when you were using it in your time at, you know, in the law firm? So uh, my examples, 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 <laughs> examples for you know, a big example for me would be the fact that you're coming from one culture in another environment, the ability to bridge that. So being able to explain clearly to a client from a Western European country or America or wherever, you know, this is how you do it in, in this world. This would be a normal process, procedure, etc. And then translating that into what happens on the ground here in Serbia or in the Balkans. So it's a real bridging. Um, it's a real um, it's a real insight, actually, which you know, in term in business terms, is is very important because without that practical local insight, you can have a great global strategy or philosophy, but if you cannot translate it effectively into where you're operating locally you have a problem. So particularly in law, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of things that are written in the law, but nobody, nobody whatsoever does it, you know. So if you want to be, you know, have the shiny gold standard, you may have, you know, you may have a problem because actually you don't necessarily need to do it. Um, so it's about, it's the practical application of things that are maybe, you know, theoretical. I mean, I, I felt that that was a huge, useful, uh, hugely useful. How else did I use it? I think um, being, if I look at my role in the firm was very much about nurturing people and the team. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily have been a huge local cultural thing. So building and structuring teams, creating the team and structuring it and insisting on sharing information in a culture which honestly doesn't share it necessarily all the time particularly because it was very early stage where anybody who had any you know, experience or special knowledge absolutely wanted to keep it to themselves and, and make sure that they, were, they had the competitive advantage with it. My whole philosophy was about really building teams, sharing information and creating loyalty that way. Uh, I have a question. When I listen to you, and I, I have to say that I'm really lucky that I know you for some time already, and I saw you in action uh, several times. And uh, also what is interesting, like sitting at these big tables, um, which are male dominated, it's not something that happens for you uh, that was happening to, to you in the law office. I know that recently you are sitting at uh, with 20 men and are right now the only woman in one business angels group. So what I would like to know is like if we go back to that 25-year-old uh, Patricia and then 35-year-old Patricia who was in the same situation and today's year old uh, Patricia, what are the things that you learned how to cope in those situations? What were some behaviors that you were doing previously and now you think um, you do them better or differently? And what have you learned in that really, I would say, a long process of being um, exotic? 
Yeah, I, I think I was very, I was very fast. I have to say, maybe too fast, too quick to jump into things. Uh, I very want, I, I very much wanted to put my personal stamp on everything, you know, as part of your personal identity. Um, very, very driven to the point, probably, you know, of, of of overdoing it. So the standard was difficult for me to achieve. Never mind people around me. So that might have, you know, put people off a little bit. I was very much perceived as being aggressive. Um, that the challenge I had with that was I'm, I'm quite direct as you can as you can gather probably um, the fact that I, I felt I was assertive I felt that I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I just went for it so um, you know looking at you know the pacing myself now I'm being more selective about what I do and who I work with but that's the privilege of my age and experience frankly I mean you know if if, if I was 25. And you're in the law firm and you just say, well, I don't want to work with him. And I don't like that client. I'm not going to work with them. You know, you just don't get that. You don't get that chance, really. Um, at, at the more senior end, I think you define your business by the people you work with and for. You define your business, define yourself by making that decision and having the courage to say no. Yeah. So, I mean, Patricia, you've, you've spoken around, you know, the power of, you know, nurturing people and how that's been part of your competitive advantage and building teams and at the same time being very discerning in terms of who you draw into your life. Might you be able to explain or describe to us who has actually been part of your squad that's nurtured you to be where you are today, even if it's part of the law firm story and also where you are today, because I definitely want to also explore in terms of what Patricia's journey looks like. But who are these people who were your squad? Interesting. Uh, not so many here. I, I, I was very blessed. I studied law in, in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, that The environment in that college was fabulous because there was seven, 66 of us in the class, which is very unusual for law school. Um, it's a very small number, and one quarter of them were from Northern Ireland. So uh, we had very diverse views, and that was, you know, really part of the culture in that university. Um, in my third and fourth year, I worked at the Irish Centre for European Law because, one, I, I believed in the European concept and educating Irish lawyers on the impact of European law on their own businesses. But I had the privilege of working with Mary Robinson, who, uh, with her husband, Nick, ran the Irish Centre for European Law. So if I look back on the very early days with Mary, who was a barrister, a leading barrister uh, at, at the time as well, um, I, I was very lucky that I had the opportunity to firsthand work with seriously principled, educated leaders. And that instilled in me the sense that, well, maybe I can I can actually sort of follow in a small way. But it's, I mean, leadership is something when you see it, you do sort of know there are different styles of leadership, but you you see something in it that you can follow. So I'm very much nurtured by that. Um, throughout my career, also in, in Brussels at the European Commission, you know, having a, usually lawyers who were older than you, um, you know, a, a partners in law firm, and now I was head of Europe for the International Bar Association for a number of years, having a team of colleagues around you who were happy to you for you to be upfront because again the guys quite often want to be upfront. They were happy for you to have that moment because they knew you were going to share it with them. So um, I feel very privileged that I had inspiring people at various stages of my life um, that were not so far away. You know, when people are so inspiring but they're just up on a pedestal, they're just the unachievable. 
having somebody who's inspiring around you, who's not so far away, that you actually feel, I can take a little step in that direction, and that's an inspiration. And I think our role as women, I, I, I try this every day. Um, I'm trying to find people who have a spark that I can support, that I can listen to, that I can offer advice if they want it, um, you know, and, and that I can I can connect the dots, like Zoya said. It's about connecting dots. I, I see dots and I connect them all the time. Sure. So, I mean, you're describing a lot around what happened in up to a certain point in your journey. So we're talking about your time in the law firm, Trinity College. I mean, these are incredible experiences that you've had. What is Patricia up to now? And what was that moment of change that took her from where she was before to where she is in 2020? Right. Well, um, I've just like literally six weeks ago, um, I left my firm, uh, having spent, you know, over 23 years or 24 years in it, um, partly personal because I ended up getting forced. And when that happens, uh, your whole life uh, needs some readjustment. So it was a personal reason. But actually, in terms of a career, I felt that I had achieved as much as I could within a very successful organization. And if I had stayed, I felt I would have declined in terms of motivation. Uh, you know, you make it to the top or, you, you know, what we perceived as the top. Maybe it's not, but, it, you know, for us, it was a, a success. And I just thought rather than go on the decline and do it for the sake of it, I had the opportunity. And because I am curious and not afraid, very important, do not be afraid. <laughs> you know, I am not afraid. Uh, I thought, okay. I could leave it another five years and then I'm too too close to pension. Well, not quite, but okay. Uh, you know, and I thought, okay, let's give it a stab at something that I really that is really important, my core values. So I spent as part of this transition process personally, I spent some time on understanding what was my motivation, what are my values, who was I really, why did I really study law? Why do I, you know, why did I do all of those things? And it took some time, but then I, I condensed that into two two aspects of myself. One is uh, supporting female leadership. So supporting women in business, uh, board positions, board readiness, women in tech, uh, wherever possible, so that we can actually have the female energy at the top table, at that big table. If we have male and female energy, it's representative. If it is not, and I don't just mean the token woman, you know, with the trousers on, I mean that energy, that the expression of that energy and that philosophy, that approach, that view, all of that must be, um, you know, listened to, understood. And I think then we can get to a balanced way of doing business and a balanced way of engaging in politics, um, having a balanced role in society and theoretically a better planet as a result of it. Sure. So for me, what stands out is I, often when I'm trying to figure out how to present this feminine energy in the big rooms with the big tables. I'm confronted with the fact that before I'm out there representing the feminine energy, I also need to understand my relationship with my feminine energy, which means sometimes I have to face down quite a few sort of demons and ghosts and things in, in my head. So you're describing a moment of transition, but at the same time, a moment where you were starting to position yourself to enable others, which means that in order to be able to do that really, really well, you probably needed to face down your own demons sort of square on and whilst going through a difficult transition. How did you work with that challenge? And from those challenges, 
what are some of them that continue to endure? Because it's not like a challenge and solving a challenge is a destination. What is What are some of the things that you're still grappling mm-hmm. with now whilst not being afraid and being curious and enabling and nurturing and all of that rock star stuff? Yeah, no, uh, I totally... Um... Again, the biggest, I think, uh, you know, transition in my life was clearly, you know, facing the failure of of a disintegrating marriage, for example, Um, realizing that no matter how you held things together, it was no longer possible. And letting that go was a huge personal, uh, you know, failure in the beginning, but then acceptance in the end. So uh, and that led to everything else, you know, so. I think, you know, there's there's always been, and with all of us in life, uh, you look back and you think, if I would have, could have, should have, whatever, um, I try to understand why I made the deep subconsciously, why did I make the decisions I made? I was very lucky. I had a great therapist, strongly recommend therapy for everybody at some point in their lives. Uh, it is a privilege. Um, and it was a process where in the beginning, you're rejecting what, you know, you, you're so, we're all so caught up with our idea of self uh, and, you know, projecting certain aspects of self. And we all have the shadow aspects of self that are not the shiny, nice, you know, rock star aspects, but the aspects that, you know, how, you know, that you have to live with as uh, and recognize it's part of us, you know. So for me, that that was not nice. Um, but, you know, but more than, more than anything, it's just this fear of letting people down, uh, letting down family, letting down the firm, letting down everybody. Uh, and now my other big challenge is putting yourself first, because that's in my culture. I come from a you know Catholic Irish culture. You know, being first and being self-absorbed or being self-aware was was you know was selfish. You know, you're supposed to think about others, and particularly as women, we are brought up essentially to think and care for others. And the idea of putting yourself first really is selfish. And I, I had a big problem. Even now, I, that, I struggle with that a lot um, because I'll think about my kids. I think about everybody else. It's like, okay. And, and then run, 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 run. Oh, am I okay? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I suppose I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> you know. Just uh, while you're talking about it, I, I think we are all kind of struggling. Like we know that we should be more uh, aware of our own needs and desires, but then we are also failing to do it. Whatever it is, culture, the way we grew up, the world around us. Uh, but is there someone now in your corner who tells you and reminds you, come on, Patricia, uh, now you have to think on of yourself? Or it's, again, Patricia talking to herself. And uh, so how, how are you facing this thing? How are you making yourself... Um, somebody helping you do it it's true because i I, you have to yes uh i'm aware of myself when i see too many opportunities so i i start speaking faster everything's faster and i go back to the behavior i had 25 years ago my kids will be likely to say to me like hey mom you know chill uh you know and i'll be i'm more aware of it or people around me will just say take time out take a break you know, for me, like, for example, tomorrow, I'm taking my first little weekend away after eight months in one country. And, I'm, you know, it took me a while to say, oh, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And now it's like, it's a fabulous day, fabulous moment. Let's take it for you. Uh, so more than anything, my kids would remind me, but um, I'm aware of it because I also I meditate every day. And uh, that at least slows me down. And I focus on, you know, 
being grateful, which I am absolutely every day. And it just slows me down in terms of the priorities and you don't have to do everything. Yeah, I think that's a big one. You don't have to do everything and you don't have to be everything to everyone. Um, and so for me, then it brings us back to the concept you kind of touched on in terms of working with women in leadership, in terms of bringing in the feminine into the big rooms with the big table. Are you able to describe what your version of the feminine is in the big room, in the big table? What does it look like? How does it express itself? And perhaps what makes it rock? I think uh, quiet confidence. Nothing, nothing can touch it. I think being solid as a rock in yourself. Um, and it's easier said than done. But that perception, if I've, you know, for example, I don't think I've ever been sexually harassed or harassed very much in my life, ever. And I remember one point making a joke, and it's not a joking matter, of course. But I remember thinking, so what, how come? Like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> you know, how come no one's ever tried? And I think part of it is um, that I, I, portray myself in a way in which people will not get away with uh, disrespectful behavior. And so, you know, I think the feminine at the table for me in, involves um, judgment, uh, in, involves good communication skills, which means listening as much as speaking, um, being aware of what's going on subconsciously. So try and, for example, what I found useful is with my male colleagues, I try and understand their personality types. So I look at what they're, how they're portraying themselves to me, and I try and understand what might be going on underneath that. Why are they reacting to what I say? And that actually allows me to be a bit more empathetic about maybe why they're being defensive about something. Uh, and it also allows me to change and adjust the way I communicate so I don't look like I'm attacking. Because I think the challenge is attack and defend is a way of life. And it may be a male, or I think it's a human way of life, but you know, it's predominant in the corporate world. And people become very defensive and entrenched very quickly, which means that they're closed-minded to new ideas. So I've learned, and it took me quite a while, as any of my colleagues might say, I've learned to listen more. Um, and I've enjoyed the analysis that goes with listening more. Yeah. And I guess because you're a curious person. So I would imagine that the analysis kind of feeds into your, your natural curiosity. So for me, my last question is, what makes you rock? Oh, what my, I don't know if I, I really don't know if I rock, but um, I, what makes me what makes me excited, uh, what makes me um, uh, really watching impact. I think at this stage of my life, uh, it's watching, you know, planting little seeds and watching them grow. Um, and at this stage, when we look at also the sustainability story, which is another huge story and impact investing, which I'm involved in, I have now decided I have crazy energy, as Zoya knows. I'm seriously, I have a lot of energy. Uh, I am blessed with energy. Not everybody has it. So I have to use it effectively. So now I'm looking at having the greatest impact possible with like-minded people. So rather than waste my energy for the length of time I have on the planet with people who are really less like-minded, it's not that I'm close-minded, but I'm just, in order to have impact, you need enough open-minded people that you can have an impact on or influence 
to be able to work together. If you have to persuade people so much to join you, uh, it's, you know, it's really too much energy. So let's work with creating communities of like-minded people who really can collaborate together. Um, and I mean, tangibly, realistically, practically, um, you know, in a different way. So we talked about feminine as well. You know, the different way is maybe more nurturing. Maybe, I know stereotypes and whatever, but less selfish, less aggressive, more allowing people space, allowing people their view, um, trying to incorporate it. I like mediating between people. I've always, I've done that for the last 20 years. So, you know, me, you know, managing different interests to come up with a consensus in the middle and then working together to achieve that consensus. That, that's to add. <laughs> I am like listening to you and I love everything you're saying, but there is uh, one thing that crossed my mind while you were answering this question. The question was, what makes you rock? And then you diverted the question in a great uh, <laughs> lawyer-like manner, which I really love, but it's just something that I, um, that I noticed that uh, maybe you are still um, not like, like all of us. I think that's always the most difficult question to answer. But I just want to add something like, in my opinion, as a person who knows you, uh, I think you rock because you are bold, you are curious, you are not afraid to say what you think, you are not afraid to start new things, even if they uh, end up uh, failing or are likely uh, to fail. And um, you are just uh, an amazing and nurturing person as well, together with all of that. And I think those two things often don't go hand in hand. And th that's why I think you are here and you rock. And I'm really, really uh, extremely happy that uh, you were able to join us in this episode. And I can't uh, honestly wait to share it with, with the rest of the world and the audience. So excited. Please reach out if there's any way I can help like-minded, strong women who want to change the world. Well, thank you, Patricia. And we'll definitely be sharing some of your information when we release this episode because I think you're phenomenal. So thank you for your time and keep rocking. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from around the world. Should you be or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, please contact us through our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter channels. Handle She Rocks Global. Hashtag She Rocks. Until next time, keep rocking.